0: We judge reality by the response of our senses. Once we are convinced of the reality of a given situation, we abide by its rules. We judge the bullets to be solid, the guns to be real. Therefore, they can kill.
1: Bridge to all debts, brace yourself. For the season three premiere of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Vance.
2: And I'm Steve Morris, and I got my six shooter strapped on. I got I'm wearing some chaps and I'm ready to head out into the old west for some Star Trek.
1: Oh, the old west for Star Trek, which is not nearly as much of a stretch as you probably think it is. And, you know, I got to say, Steve, we've had some pretty great guests on season one and season two of Enterprise Incidents. And to pressure to top that, to really deliver... To to have a debut for Season 3 that is worthy and really going to the next level for Enterprise Incidents, maybe even a greater level than Star Trek actually went, was a tall order. But I think we are delivering with our very special guest for our deep dive, if you haven't already figured it out, of Spectre of the Gun. Our special guest wrote the screenplay for the Sarek episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Uh, He actually has an affiliation with my other passion, The Beatles, because he wrote the film Desperately Seeking Paul McCartney. And I got to meet him after I saw that film, which was quite the joy. But the reason he is here is because he is the author of the epic six-volume book series, These Are the Voyages. Now, I know a lot of our listeners have and have read these books. These are the voyages. But if you are a devoted listener to Enterprise Incidents and you have not yet gotten any of these books, particularly the first three, which cover the first three seasons of the original series, then, then you've got to get these books because they are essential readings to anyone who really does truly love the original series. So excited. Welcome to Enterprise Incidents. Welcome aboard, Mark Cushman.
3: Hold the book up, Scott. <laughs> yes, this is
1: a this is an audio podcast, but I have in my hot little hands uh, the original series season three of These Are the Voyages, which I have to say, you know, we we covered a lot of uh, of of uh, the build up, all the changes that went into season three. Uh, Mark, you know, your overall assessment of the quality of season three compared to the first two seasons, like, what's your take on on season three as a whole? And do you think, like, it deserves more credit than it gets, or do you think it deserves the bad rap it has?
3: I think it deserves more credit. Look, I'm not arguing that it's not as good as seasons one and two. I mean, of course, it's, it's not. But there's so many great episodes within season three to, to just dismiss it as being, boy, I wish they had never made it. Well, first of all, the show would have never gone into syndication because there wouldn't have been enough episodes. But the episode we're talking about today, Spectre of the Gun, uh, I love Alana Troyus I love Let That Be Your Last Battle film. All are yesterdays. Um, several others from that season, uh, The Paradise Syndrome, are there's a lot of really good episodes. And they finally found a shirt that fit Kirk through the entire season. It didn't shrink.
1: At the beginning of the first two seasons, the valor looked great, but it definitely did shrink. And by you know, when you get to like by any other name and uh, and the Omega Gory, the shirt did look a little right. a little tight. But Steve, my question for you is. Uh, uh, You know, when we talk about Spectre of the Gun, like what was what's been your assessment of Spectre of the Gun uh, after all these years?
2: Well, my dad's favorite kind of movies were Westerns. And so Westerns always held a big place in my house. And and so and I would always think of my dad. So getting to take the Star Trek guys and go back to the Old West, I always loved. And I was also always drawn, even as a kid. I think the formalism and the way that things are staged theatrically had a lot of effect on me when I went in to start directing theater and things like that because it is very, very theatrical and not filmic. It's a really, really interesting approach that I've always loved.
1: I, I agree. I, I've always loved Spectre of the Gun, and uh, it's really too bad, first of all. That Spectre of the Gun, it's the first episode that they shot for season three. It's really a shame that they weren't able to show that episode first instead of the one that they actually did show on September 16th, 1968, which was Spock's Brain. But let's just say in in a parallel universe that they actually did show Spectre of the Gun as the first episode. I think a lot of the fans who put their reputations on the line with this letter writing campaign would have felt like that was worth it that was worth all the blood sweat and tears to keep star trek on for a third season Uh, and i also think that just because of who wrote it and because of the theme of the story and the payoff of it it would have been right at home in season one or season two if you take away the polyester shirts and put on a war shirt i think it would have had an episode that if it had, like let's say this ended at the end of season two it would have been right at home and the other thing that had just occurred to me when i was doing my rewatch of specter of the gun it's actually a perfect star trek episode because when star trek was first conceived how did roddenberry pitch star trek he pitched it as wagon train to the stars he pitched it as a Western in space. And at the beginning of every single episode of the original series, William Shatner, Captain Kirk, refers to a space not as the frontier, but as the final frontier. So I think having this sort of mashup of a Western and and a science fiction actually really does work in its favor. And Spectre of the Gun was directed by Vincent McAveety. It was the sixth and last episode That he directed after directing 45 episodes of Gunsmoke between 1965 and 1975. But the teleplay was written by Gene Kuhn. So Mark Cushman is going to tell us all why we don't see that name, Gene Kuhn, when we're watching the episode. Take it, Mark.
3: Well, first of all, let me just add to what you two just said. I love the episode the first time I saw it in 1968. And I think it's just a fabulous episode. And you're right, Wagon Train to the Stars. I love the surreal nature of the episode, too. It's bizarre. It's unlike any other Star Trek, but it's so true to Star Trek. As far as Gene Kuhn, when he left the series, uh, he signed a contract with Universal to be the showrunner on It Takes a Thief. And then after that, the name of the game. And so his contract did not allow him to work for anybody else. Yet, the only way Roddenberry would release him is if he guaranteed to do four to six scripts for the third season. So that's why he came up with the name Lee Cronin. And it's really interesting to read the memos between Roddenberry and his staff, Fred Freiberger, and NBC, is they never, ever say Gene Coon. They always say Lee Cronin. We understand Mr. Cronin is only available for a short while. We better get his script quick. Because if any of those memos yeah. fell into the hands of Universal, there'd be a lawsuit. So there was a real conspiracy between Paramount, Roddenberry, NBC, to protect the good name of Gene L. Coon.
1: Wow. That's, that's real. But you know, it just goes to show you that even Gene, though Gene Kuhn left him, whether it was because he had a falling out with, with Roddenberry, because Kuhn had taken the show into a more humorous nature, or because he truly was burned out, which is quite probable, given that here he is producing and writing now for it takes a thief and he's still kind of squeezing in episodes of Star Trek uh that maybe maybe that burnout was 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 true but when he wrote his his uh contract outline it was called Execution 1872 and that was dated March 6th 1968 when he wrote his outline and the outline was dated the last gunfight that was dated March 18th He went all the way to second draft teleplay by May 9th, and then new story editor Arthur Singer did a script polish on May 14th, and then new executive producer chosen by Roddenberry to now run Star Trek. He did revisions between May 16th and May 28th. But my other question for you, Mark, is where along the way did the last gunfight get changed to Spectre of
3: the Gun? Uh, After it was uh, shot and uh, it should be in there in my book. I think it tells you the actual date that they changed the title, which I got off of a memo, Uh, but uh, it was after they finished shooting it. So yeah, up until that point, it was the last gunfight. Do you know why the change? I believe I do uh, because I interviewed Bob Justman among just about everybody else. And it was his idea to film it the way it was because they, they couldn't go out on location they had to do it on a stage because the budget had been cut so poorly and they couldn't build an entire western town. So he, it was his idea to use surrealistic images, a partial wall, a clock suspended into space and everything else. And there's a line in the script where when Spock is doing the Vulcan mind meld on them about they are just they are merely specters in your mind. They cannot kill if you don't believe in them. I'm paraphrasing. But the word specter is used there. So after they started cutting the episode together and saw how eerie it looked and how surrealistic it was, it just seemed like the last gunfight didn't fit anymore. That had too much of a realistic tone Mm. where Spectre of the Gun is like a dream. And that's what that episode looks like.
1: It does look like a dream, yeah. It really does. And and in this case, you know, the third season. You know, when you look at the budget for the first season, which was one hundred ninety three thousand five hundred dollars per episode, and now in the third season, the budget was slashed all the way down to one hundred and seventy eight thousand three hundred and sixty two dollars per episode. So not only was the episode was the budget cut, but you also have some bumps in the salaries of the main actors. So the budget was 178362 and the total cost for Spectre of the Gun came out to $182,184, which brought it almost $4,000 over budget. The episode was filmed between May 21st and May 29th, 1968. It was shot in seven days, so it went one day over schedule. The episode aired on October 25th, 1968 it was the 61st episode to air october 25th 1968 which was actually one day before the 87th anniversary of the real gunfight at the LK Mm -hmm. corral and the score for this episode is fantastic scored by jerry fielding it was his second score after scoring the trouble with tribbles So that's two very unique scores, and he scored the episode on July 5th, 1968. It was the 57th episode to film, the first episode film for Season 3, 61st to air.
2: Would you like to know a little bit about what was going on in the world at the time this was filmed? Shoot, Steve. So when we last left Our Heroes, it was early January of 1968, and this was filmed in late May. And I just wanted to do the briefest of catch-ups because – there's so much that happened in the world in the next five months. It's, it is literally world-changing events, the first of which in January is the Tet Offensive, which we have been talking about, is going to come. And this was obviously a huge sea change in the Vietnam War. And what's interesting about it is really militarily it was a loss for the North Vietnamese But morally, it was really a loss for the South and for the United States because it made everyone realize, oh, this isn't going to be over anytime soon. And to reinforce that in February, Walter Cronkite goes to Vietnam. He hosts a 30-minute special. And during this special, he says, it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. When Lyndon Johnson saw that, he said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the American people.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's right. I remember that.
2: Huge, huge changes. A few weeks later in March, Robert F. Kennedy announces his candidacy for presidents, which is a, which is a huge big deal because we're running against an incumbent uh, president. Also in March, and there's no, this is not important at all, but Mel Brooks' The Producers was released. And the only reason I bring this up is I literally just listened to Mel Brooks' autobiography, read by Mel Brooks. It is lovely. He's an amazing person. It's <laughs> not an important event, but it was important for me this week. And then on March 31st, and this is unheard of, Lyndon Baines Johnson announces he will not seek re-election, which suddenly thrusts Robert Kennedy to the forerunner of the Democratic Party. It's April April 3rd. Martin Luther King Jr. delivers his final speech. It's the I've Been to the Mountaintop speech and he's assassinated the next day on April 4th. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One week later, Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act. And it's very possible that had King not been assassinated, that wouldn't have been signed at that time. In May, 23 people, this is just horrible, 23 people were killed in LA in the worst helicopter accident in the US history. They had left LAX and they were flying to Disneyland.
1: Oh, that's sad.
2: And on May 27th, George W. Bush enlisted in the Texas National Guard after graduating from uh-huh. That is what was going on in the world.
1: A couple of good things uh, worth mentioning. On April 2nd, I think it was April 2nd, 2001, A Space Odyssey opened in theaters. And I think like the very next day, am I wrong about the Steve, that the original Planet of the Apes also opened in theaters? They're definitely
2: that year. I don't know if they were that close.
1: I mean, I think they were really, really close because I know that... Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure they were really, really close. I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast, uh, feel free to correct me in the comment section. But uh, uh, I mean, two of the greatest movies, certainly the greatest sci-fi movies of all time were released really, really, really close apart, maybe even ours. So there's some good news uh, in with all that. And I believe, Mark, while this episode was being filmed, weren't the Emmy Awards handed out that week and Star Trek was 0 for 4?
3: I don't know what day they were handed out. I mean, it's it's in my book, I'm sure, but I don't know offhand. But yeah, Star Trek was nominated in the first two seasons as Best Dramatic Series on television. And that had never happened before for a sci-fi. Twilight Zone was never nominated as Best Dramatic Show or Outer Limits or any of Irwin Allen's shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leonard Nimoy was nominated as Best Supporting Actor. And William Shatner was overlooked each time. Uh, but yeah, it was... Um, Uh, just the fact that Nimoy was nominated and the show was nominated was a big deal because the Emmys had always snubbed science fiction and April is when they would be giving those awards out. So it had just happened. Yeah. The third season was not nominated for for
1: outstanding dramatic series. And, you know, who can blame the voters for not voting (laughs) for season three, but certainly seasons one and two were, and Nimoy was nominated for supporting actor all three seasons, which I think is really cool.
3: It is. And, you know, we were talking briefly uh, uh, before about comparing the third season. Well, you mentioned, Scott, the the budget was slashed. And Paramount had mandated that they could only spend five and a half days shooting each episode, which means halfway into the fifth day uh, or the sixth day, you would switch over to the next episode you were going to film. So that's why when you look at some of the third season episodes, you may say, well, Shatner's performance isn't as good or this isn't as good. You didn't get very many takes. It was you, you got one take and we're moving on. And so that's why the refinement of the show wasn't quite as good. The money for building sets wasn't there. The big guest stars uh, weren't as numerous during that season as well, just because of the budget cuts. But this is an episode where the budget cuts actually benefited it. Because if they had gone out and shot this on the streets of Dodge City, you know, where Gunsmoke was filmed or anywhere else like that, it wouldn't have been anything like it is. It was that brilliant idea of ma- of making everything half images, incomplete, fragmented images, because they were drawing on Kirk's memory, and he had never been there in the Old West. You know, he had only heard about it and read about it. So I think that is one of the uh, the assets of the episode. So here's a case where budget actually helped. Would
2: you like to get into Specter of the Gun? Let's let's do it. So we start off in the teaser right in the middle of something exciting going on. It's a red alert, phaser cruiser standing by, and there's this thing floating out in space, which it looks like changed quite a bit between the original effects and the remastered special effects.
1: I, I think Spectre of the Gun's an episode where I actually prefer the original effects. I think they work really, really well. But you're right, Steve. I mean, like let's say, again, that this was the first episode of season three that the fans were seeing and there there's a red of work going on and you've got this great score going on by jerry fielding and spock is looking into a science station and you hear him say fascinating like there's a lot going on already like i'm already in to specter the gun and i have no idea where this episode's going to go
2: And this thing out there in space is staying with them. We don't know if it's going to attack or communicate. They try, they change their course. It stays in front of them. And then we hear in a deep voice.
0: Aliens, you have encroached on the space of the Melkor. You will turn back immediately. This is the only warning you will
1: receive. That is Jimmy Dewan's voice. He's the voice of the Melkelson boy. And one thing that's already different noticing from season three compared to even towards the end of season two is that the uh, relationship between Kirk and Spock isn't as chummy as it was throughout season two. And And a lot of that reason is because not only did Roddenberry sort of want to take that back, but you have this new executive producer in charge of season three. What was Fred... Freiburger like and do you think that he actually in spite of everything was actually a good producer for star trek
3: no uh i think he was a good producer look he he got wild wild west up and running he was the one who brought together the elements of science fiction western james bond and every and made it work where a couple other producers had failed before him so you got to give him his due um, but he didn't, uh, I don't think he quite got Star Trek as much as he should have, not as much as Gene Kuhn did. But that didn't make him a bad producer. Uh, the main problem was the budget, the shortened shooting schedules, and the fact that Roddenberry kind of separated himself from the show, not right away, not at this point, but several episodes in. Uh, and, but despite that, Scott, you had mentioned before about Arthur Singer and Fred Freeberger both rewriting the script. The characters always sound like the characters. And if you read the first draft scripts or the second draft scripts that the freelancers wrote, they don't. So Freiberger was catching, Mm. or Freiberger was catching the voices very well. And he and Arthur Singer were polishing it to make it sound like Star Trek and keep the characters consistent. That is an immense talent. And bringing a show in on budget when the budget's been slashed is an immense talent. So that's where he deserves some credit. And I don't think he's ever gotten it. It's a shame. But no, if Gene Kuhn had been there or if Dorothy Fontana had been produced, elevated to producer, uh, I think uh, it would have been gone a little smoother. But in this episode, nothing suffers.
1: No, I I agree. I mean, can you imagine that Dorothy Fontana was a producer and, and Gene Kuhn had stayed on? Anyway. Steve, take take it away. <laughs> well,
2: and the thing that happens is after we hear this voice, they don't look around at each other and say, man, that guy sounds a lot like Scotty. <laughs> all of them look around and say, Vulcan, Captain. English. It was Russian, sir.
0: Every word. No, Captain, it was
2: Swahili. They all heard the voice in a different language.
1: So Kirk immediately recognizes that they're using telepathy on the uh, Enterprise crew. And s- this... Definitely triggers something in Spock. True
0: telepaths can be most formidable, Captain, and we have been warned.
1: Now, Steve, as you know, Spock has had first-hand experience with telepaths. Isn't that right?
2: I was thinking about this a lot because, of course, from the very beginning of Star Trek with the Telosians, we had telepaths that could really mess with us. And he says this line... It's funny. I, t- I really like this episode, but there are all sorts of things in this episode that don't make sense. And this is one of them, which is he says this line and then he's kind of going to forget it. Everyone's going to forget this until the fourth act of the show, you know. But, yes, I absolutely am thinking about the telosians and the Cage at this moment.
1: And that this is also an episode that leans in a little bit to A Taste of Armageddon where they were under orders to establish diplomatic relations with the planet Amini R7. And now they are under orders to establish contact with the Melkoshians, quote, at all costs. Now, why we are under those kinds of orders at all ta- at all costs, we, we never really know. I mean, were starships lost in the area? Like, why is it so essential? that That's what I don't get.
2: Well, it goes beyond that. I think this makes no sense at all. The Melkosians have never gone out and had any, we say, has there been any other contacts? And they go, no, there's never been another contact. I don't think a ship has gone in because the Melkosians have said, stay away. So why are we suddenly deciding that these people that we've never met, we must make a contact with them at all costs, which also seems totally against the prime directive and all start, it doesn't make any sense.
3: Yeah, I agree. And uh, what I'm going to do, in a minute or two, when uh, when I don't need to speak, is I'm going to glance in the first draft of the script and see if there's anything in the in the teaser about that, any explanation that's given. Because one piece of information that was taken out uh, is the reason that the Melkotians didn't want us to come near them. And that reason was mm. is they had been monitoring our television signals for hundreds of years. And in fact, the signals that they were receiving were fairly... Uh, they were receiving stuff that was being broadcast in the 1960s. So all the violence on American TV, uh, all the madness, all the wars like Vietnam, but just even watch the Westerns. I mean, we killed the population of the United States 10 times over in the Western series that were airing during that time. So the Melkoshians had been watching this, and that's why when the Enterprise came towards them, it was like, you go away, you are disease." OK, we, they, we had to live up to our history. Right. And in Kirk's mind, that's why they also said it's going to be your history that's going to be your your judgment. You know, there are violent histories. So they were well aware of it. Unfortunately, those lines in the script were taken out, I guess, because of time constraints. Not because, of, well, it could have been censorship. I'll have to look at these uh, memos from NBC. It's very possible NBC didn't want that in there. Because that's making criticism of the NBC Television Network and what they're broadcasting. So so that was taken out. uh, So we missed that whole thing. And I'm going to take a peek here and see if I can come up with an answer for you guys on what the mission was as we proceed through the episode.
2: That's a really interesting sci-fi idea.
3: That I think and it's
2: so funny because this episode kind of explores a bunch of stuff, but doesn't dig as deeply. And that's a whole interesting idea. Our reputation has preceded us. And now we have to overcome
1: that. That is that is an excellent, excellent premise. And it's too bad that they didn't uh, sort of keep that in there. That would have sort of answered a, a lot of the questions that we're now asking ourselves.
0: We have contacted your buoy and understand its message. We hope that you will understand that our intent is to establish peaceful relations with you.
2: And there's no answer. And he asks Spock for an opinion opinion who says,
0: I prefer being a welcome
2: guest captain, but there seems to be little choice.
1: And Kirk says, none whatsoever. Like, why?
2: (laughs) And this is, you know, there's this, we kind of said this before. I believe this makes no sense and I essentially to enjoy the episode, we kind of just have to go. Okay. I okay. guess. Yeah.
1: yeah let's yeah.
2: go. <laughs> and we advise uh, McCoy and Scotty to meet us in the transporter room and him and Chekhov and Spock are going to head there and we're going to beam down to the planet.
1: So this is interesting. So listen, I, I feel like things were never the same for George Takei after he, you know, sort of left Star Trek for 10 straight episodes in season two to make a uh, the green berets with John Wayne. Cause when he comes back, you know, he doesn't have a lot to do towards the end of season two. He's not even there to film the first episode of season three. And so you have all your senior officers, Kirk and Spock and Scotty, and even, you know, even Chekhov as an ensign. But so technically, if Scotty's gone, then Sulu should be in command, but Sulu wasn't even in the episode. So, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: We beam down to the planet, and we're in the midst of serious fog, which is, by the way, a good way to save on set design, (laughs) because we don't need any.
0: I knew it had to happen. It's a fine time for that transporter mechanism to break down. Impossible, Dr. McCoy. My transporter was working perfectly.
2: And we try to figure out what we're doing here, and we look down at the tricorder. And that's not working.
1: Kirk uh, tries to hail the Enterprise, says, let's get out of here. And uh, no no word from the Enterprise. But then you hear a voice say, aliens. And then the fog gives way a little bit. And you see suspended there the face of the Melkotian. I got to say this about season three of the original series is that, you know, of course, most of the aliens we saw, in the first two seasons were humanoids bipeds i mean you know you have the salt vampire from the man trap and you have you know of course the gorn from arena uh and of course the mogatu from a private little war but in season three you really have aliens that look like aliens i mean you have the Melkoshin, you have the uh evil energy force in day of the dove so uh so i think this is one area where where star trek kind of got it right because the aliens really did look like aliens
2: it's, it's so funny because I always thought, and there's no reason for me to think this, that, that I always thought of that head as sort of like um, the Corbinite maneuver and the false bell. I, I always went, that's not actually what they look like. It's just a symbol that's being created. But I don't know why I ever thought that.
1: And also the Melkoshin face was designed by Mike Miner. Mike Miner not only worked on a few other Star Trek episodes from the third season, like Day of the Dove and the Tholian Web, but Mike Miner was the production illustrator on Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and he was the art director on Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. So he wow. worked on this episode. I think that's pretty cool. Our
0: warning was played. You have disregarded it. You, Captain Kirk, the disobedience was on your orders. Yours shall be the pattern
1: of your death. So the voice of the Malkotians now is being voiced by Abraham Sofar, who was the Phasian. Remember in Charlie X, at the end of Charlie X? That's his voice. And also, originally, the Melkosians were referred to as the Shawneans, which chose Tombstone after intercepting old TV signals from Earth. The, S- the Shawneeans sounded like an American Indian tribe name. So the name was changed to something more, you know, sci-fi-ish.
0: You are outside. You are disease. The disease must be destroyed.
2: I- I'm really fascinated, Mark, by this idea of that they had an image of us and they're condemning us for that image, because I think it makes would make more sense, because And uh, spoiler alert, we're going to get to the end. And like at the end of Arena, Kirk is going to choose not to kill. And it seems as if his choice not to kill is what saves their lives. That's what it seems like to me. Had we known this thing about we're judging you based on TV, that would have made more sense. But because the only thing we're here is that they're like super, we want to be alone, that it isn't a moral question of why they shouldn't kill of why they should save Kirk, because he chose not to kill. It is th- this idea of you are disease, disease must be destroyed, is different. And so the, I, I, I think there's a kind of a mismatch here.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a shame that that was taken out. <clears throat> and I'm just leaping through the memos and so forth, and I can, I'm not finding an explanation. But then I've got 50-something pages of memos. So it's probably in there. Uh, when I was writing the chapters, uh, Scott, there may be something in that chapter about it. But, um, but I do know that that was the situation. And it's just like um, when they did the episode Bread and Circuses. And NBC objected to when the, uh, the announcer gets up there and says the following bout is brought, being brought to you in living color. And NBC made them take out living color because they did not want this to seem like it was a dig on the network. So you're dealing with censorship back then in those days. And it did cut into a lot of the themes and what they wanted to say. And unfortunately, um, once Roddenberry uh, was no longer the line producer, the acting producer, and he stepped back to executive producer, he wasn't butting heads with NBC as frequently. Because that's the type of thing he would have done a whole battle over, that we cannot take this line out of the script. Where Fred Freiberger and even Gene Kuhn would be more um, willing to just go along and give the network what they wanted. And now he and never imagined that then 50 years later, the three of us are going to be sitting here talking about why was that line taken out, you know, but it was, right. and it's a shame, but knowing that it's, it's uh it's not represented in the episode we watch, but we know it's part of the fabric. It was part of the intention. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where, okay, this happened when we weren't in the room to see it, but as the detectives piece the whole story together, find out that that was one of the motivations of somebody who did something
1: when we hear the malkotian voice say it is done i love the camera like zooms right in onto like kirk's shirt and then it pulls back out and instead of holding his phaser mm-hmm. kirk is now holding a six gun and the crew and you know spock mccoy scotty and chekov are wearing holsters and they are standing in what looks like an old Western town, kind of, sort of. It's an incomplete old Western town. Instead of a blue sky with clouds, we have an angry red sky. So we are we are transported to this other area, which is supposed to look like old Earth, but it still looks very alien. This is where the, the cut budget actually works in favor of this episode in of Spectre of the Gun, I just love the transition from from the fog to this this seemingly old western town
3: with a blood red sky, and that that's something Matt Jeffries used to do, and um, and Jerry Fen- uh, uh they would they would color the psych the psychorama that was in the background, they purposely did not paint it, they kept it white, and they would color it by putting uh, gels on the on the lights. And so they decided what color to paint the skies based on the mood of the planet. And in one of the memos for this episode, the decision was made that this has to be a blood, a harsh red sky. And you think in comparison, like *Metamorphoses*, which I know is one of Scott's favorite episodes, that's a beautiful uh, kind of a light purple, very pretty, yeah. very pretty sky. Yeah. Uh, so you look, at, you look at Spectre of the Gun, and that sky is just blood. And that's part of the fun of it, too.
2: And what we see as they look around is that we see there's a a sheriff's building, but you just see the front wall and there's nothing behind it. We have clocks that are floating in air. We have all these things that are indicating the environment without trying to replicate the environment.
0: Spark. Evaluation. Obviously, this represents the Malkotian's concept of an American frontier town, circa 1880. It's just bits and pieces. It's incomplete.
2: And, And I love this design choice. Yeah. I think it's so so rare in television. Film is generally, it's not that it's a realistic medium, but it, it does, doesn't does show things in an abstract or totally artistic way. It wants to create a reality. And that's not what this is doing. This is saying, this is not real. And and what it made me think of as a person who grew up doing theater is black box theater. And black box theater is where we don't have the money for sets. And strangely enough, Black Box Theater started at the Pasadena Playhouse in the 1920s, but it really became popular in the 1960s. What's going on in the 60s in theater is they're rejecting all these realistic sets and they're going, we could just have this one thing to indicate where the set is and the rest be an empty space. And the thing about it that it does is having done a lot of plays like this is it forces you to focus on the characters and the story rather than on the set and the environment. And I feel very much like that's what's happening here. Like
1: we're in a play. And and also, Steve, you and I have talked many times about how Star Trek is basically a radio show in a lot of ways. And this is a great example. I think we're going to see a lot of episodes in the third season where Star Trek works so well as a radio play because they're bottle shows. Uh, you, You know, it feels like and many times throughout the third season, that Kirk Spock, McCoy and Scotty and Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu are the only Starfleet officers yeah. on the enterprise, but the thing about Specter of the Gun, in addition to everything that you just said, Steve, and I agree so much with everything you said and rewatching Specter of the Gun this time, fellas, really just made me appreciate it so much more because of everything we 've been doing on enterprise incidents especially you're sort of tying it back to the cage and also tying it to arena because so the Malkotians in this episode are basically the Metrons from arena and the Malkotians like the Metrons are saying, Hey, you've interfered and we're going to do something about this. And instead of banishing Kirk to an asteroid to fight the Gorn, they banish the landing party to a facade of Tombstone, Arizona. Mm-hmm. So it's this very interesting <laughs> the similarities between these episodes, which you've seen them so many times, or if you read volume three of These Are the Voyages, written by Mark Cushman, you'll go, oh man, yeah, Gene Ku really went back to the well on this one. But in this case, it all worked so great. That's
3: and that, and that's the link right there is Gene Kuhn was the writer of both. And Kuhn would copy himself quite a bit. And there'd be memos in there from Dorothy Fontana, especially saying, Gene, you know, Mr. Kuhn, not Roddenberry, Gene, you know, we've done this before. And she would list the episodes where he yeah, used the that. same thing before. Because Kuhn was the type of writer that, hey, if it worked, let's do it again. And it's a common theme in Star Trek, and it works beautifully.
2: Here's the one difference I see with Arena, which is, to me, Arena is more thematically linked up. You have Kirk who's angry, desperate to kill the Gorn, and that the whole episode is about that and the Metron's judging whether or not he'll do that. In the end, he doesn't. That's not what this is. Like, we're not set up in that way. And so we don't have that added thing, although it ends, the ending is very much like Arena.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in addition to Jerry Finnerman, who, yeah, Steve, you know, you and I have talked so many things about the great Jerry Finnerman, who actually will leave Star Trek in a few episodes into season three, but he's still there now. But someone who we don't, we haven't said enough about on Enterprise Incidents is Matt Jeffries. Set designer, Matt Jeffries, who, who designed all of the things that you really love about
3: this episode, Steve. And Steve, by the way, before we go too much further, your comment about the stage. Uh, I had said earlier that this episode to me is like a dream and one of the best uh, realized versions of a dream. Because, you know, if, 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 if I've had to write a few dream sequences for scripts I've done and it's very difficult to capture mm-hmm. the essence of a dream. You know it in the morning when you wake up, you can still see it, but then later on at the office and you're trying to write about it, you lose it. This one keeps that feeling because like you said, Steve, on a bare stage, on a, on a play, you know, it's the people we notice. Well, if you think about yeah. your dreams, it's the people. You don't really see the backgrounds, you know, you'll see maybe a specific object. You see the people you're interacting with in your dream. You're not painting the whole rooms because the backgrounds aren't important in a dream. And that's the way it is in this episode, too. So that's one of the effective aspects of it.
0: In the midst of what seems so unreal, the harsh reality, this is not a dream.
2: And this is where I go, because you brought up the Delosians and the cage. This is where I go, no, did you forget that whole thing in Delusions was they could be manipulating all of this. And from the very beginning, they work on the assumption that all of this is real, which they shouldn't be because of course it's not real you know
1: right. uh, absolutely and, and you know uh the the fact that Spock is the first one and really the only one to say to the bridge crew in the teaser of this episode crew telepaths can be very dangerous and we have been warned but Kirk wasn't there. I mean Kirk sort of witnessed it when he was watching the uh, flashbacks to the cage in the menagerie, but you know, McCoy was not there for Pike's voyage on the Enterprise to Talos 4. But DeForest Kelly did have two prior brushes with the OK Corral because he played Ike Clanton in an episode of You Are There which was a CBS TV anthology series from 1955. And it was a presentation of Gunfight at the OK Corral. And then just two years later, he played Morgan Earp in the 1957 feature film Gunfight at the OK Corral, co-starring Kirk Douglas
2: And Burt Lancaster. Uh, And of course, that's what we find out right now, that it is October 26, 1881. They're in Tombstone, Arizona.
0: He looked into your mind and selected what he considered the proper time and place for our punishment. Because my ancestors pioneered the American frontier.
2: Which is another little piece of info about Kirk that we didn't know
1: before. I love that. I love that. Yeah, that's great.
0: The violence of your own heritage is to be the pattern for our execution.
1: And then they still haven't figured out
2: what October 26, 1881 is. And then we hear... Ike! And up walks the sheriff, who seems to know them all by name.
0: Frank Billy Tom... Mike, I was afraid you weren't going to make it. Looks like
1: we did. And that is Johnny Behan, played by Bill Zucker, who played a lot of Western TV shows back in the day, uh, like Death Valley Days, The Virginian, and Gunsmoke. He was also on shows like The Untouchables, Lassie, The Fugitive, and Hawaii 5 And on the big screen, he was in movies like Hangar 18, which is a sort of a cult film I really love, uh, and Ace Ventura, Bet Detective. And Naked Gun 33 and a Third.
3: (laughs) Wow,
2: that's quite a career. And now they're gonna have to fight after the way they shot
0: off their mouths. You know us.
2: And this guy just thinks that Ike is a barrel of laughs.
0: (laughs) Funny. (laughs) That's what I like about you, Ike. You always see the funny side. I'm a barrel
2: of laughs. Well, nobody can say Johnny B. and doesn't have a sense of humor.
1: but that's when Kirk starts to put it all together. He called me Ike,
0: you Frank, Bones, Tom, and Billy? Ike Clanton, Tom and Frank McClary, Billy Claiborne, Billy Clanton.
1: And this is all coming from a fragmented memory of Tombstone, of the gunfight at the OK Corral. Fragmented memory, which is perfect for the fragmented set design. I know we keep coming back to that, but the story that we hear all the, like like Steve, you would call this the exposition dump. (laughs) But is this really the true story of the OK Corral, the true story of the Earps and the Clantons and Steve Morris? I have a feeling, knowing you, you did some little backstory, some history on the true story of the gunfight at the OK Corral.
2: You know me so well, Scott. Yes, Yes, I have done a little bit of research, not a ton. What's interesting to me, is that the gunfight of the O.K. Corral was not a big thing that anybody knew about. Um, Wyatt Earp, after the gunfight, had come to Hollywood and was actually part of making films, and he was a well-known lawman to some degree, but it wasn't until 1936 that there was a book written about Wyatt Earp, which was like Frontiersmen of the West or something, that people started to hear about this idea of the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. And his version of it was The Earps Are the Good Guys?, and the Cowboys, which is the Clanton gang, were the bad guys. There's a lot of controversy about what actually was going on here. Uh, but his book is what led to the what I would say is the best version of the gunfight of the OK Corral, which is John Ford's by Darling Clementine, and many, many, many versions of it after that. What, what's weird to me about this, this was really my first experience with the gunfight of the OK Corral. So it was framed for me that the ERPs were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. But then if you watch most of the other versions, the Earps are the good guys.
1: You know that's right. If you watch the the the, the movie Tombstone, you know with Val Kilmer and uh, Kurt Russell, uh, the Earps are the good guys. Some other some other things about the actual true story, and, and and Mark, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the gunfight didn't actually occur at the OK Corral, but it occurred right. Is that right? It occurred uh, outside CS Fly's photographic studio, which was basically like an alley and uh
3: is that right right yeah which is a stone's throw from the okay corral but yeah but it's not as catchy if you got to hang a title on something you're going to say okay corral absolutely
1: also the gunfight was not planned but was actually spontaneous right and it happened it happened at three o'clock not five o'clock and in addition to billy claiborne Ike Clanton also survived the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. And Steve, I'm like you. So just like I learned the Constitution, the preamble to the Constitution, by watching the Omega Glory, uh, I learned all about the Earps and the Clantons and the O.K. Corral from Specter of the Gun. But unlike the preamble to the Constitution, the real story of the Earps and the Clantons is actually quite different.
2: (laughs) Well, in general, the the power of uh, fiction – to tell us about our history is most people know more fiction history than they know real history, and frequently it's not that good. We're we're all
3: guilty of the same thing. Uh, This was my first introduction to the Gunfight at OK Corral, the Star Trek episode, and oh, it must have been a year later, I was in a class, probably seventh, eighth grade, and uh, we started talking about OK Corral with the teacher, and the teacher said, what do you guys know? And Everyone who spoke up in the room basically said what we just said, the Erps were the bad guys. And the teacher just looked at us all, and this is probably 1970, and the teacher looks at us and says, you all have been getting your history from Star Trek. <laughs> so, and, then taught us, <laughs> and then taught us the alternate version. So <laughs> I think there's a whole generation out there who got their history on this from Star Trek.
1: I'll bet so many listeners of Enterprise Incidents uh, have gotten their first brush with the OK Corral by watching Spectre of the Gun. And if you're listening right now, we would love to know if you too learned about the Earps and the Clantons from Spectre of the Gun before you heard about it anywhere else, where you saw the Tombstone movie, where you saw the Wyatt Earp movie with uh, Kevin Costner, I mean, or even Gunfight at the OK Corral, co-starring DeForest Kelly.
2: From what I've read, it sounds to me that the reality is they were all bad guys. Yep. that's wow. what it sounds like. The cow, because they they were known as the cowboys. That what the, we call the Clanton gang here. They were clearly horse thieves, and that, there's no question about that. But it also sounds like that the Irps were using their power to push a lot of people around in in Tombstone, and mm. a lot of people weren't that happy with them. So it sounds like it was a much
0: more complicated situation. Who won? The Clantons lost, Mister Checker. And we are the Clantons. We are the Clantons. And if this is a replay of history, history cannot be changed.
2: Which again, I go, why can history not be changed? You're not in, you didn't go back in time.
1: They are not, they're not quite there yet. They're they're just like looking around, even though they're seeing like the facade of the set, you know, the the uh, incomplete version of this Western town with the angry red sky. They, they are not at that point where they're like, this is an illusion.
2: No, not at all. Scott, and Scott, this brings up the question I have for you. Uh, Which is the biggest thing that we complained about from season two was parallel Earths. Mm -hmm. And we said, man, they really shouldn't do these parallel Earths thing. And the first episode of the third season, we're back in the Old West. Does this violate the parallel Earths?
1: I suspected, Steve Morris, that this conversation might come up. And I really thought about that. And no, I don't think this, this, this qualifies as a parallel earth to earth story because there's so much about this setting that is very much not earth so i think you know because there it's a setup by the melkotian and the red sky and the incomplete set i think specter of the gun gets away with not being a parallel earth story mark what do you think
3: uh i don't think it's a parallel Earth story at all because it's a surreal uh, thing it's very much like Scott said earlier. It's it's if you're going to compare it to something, it would be the cage, and right. and the thing they learned in the cage when Venus said, "But you'll feel it, whatever they right. do to you, you'll feel it. A dream can kill you. And you ever you read about people who die in their sleep uh, of a heart attack, and you think, well, why did they have a heart attack while they were sleeping instead of when they were out exercising or fighting with their wife or whatever they were doing, that should give yep. you a heart attack. Why would you die when you're resting and you're asleep? I'll bet you any money it was a dream, a very traumatic mm-hmm. dream, and they sure. had a heart attack and died. So this this episode, I think, goes much deeper than your standard parallel story. And if you just look at it, everything we're seeing does not resemble Earth. I mean, in a in a dreamlike way, it may. But it's not like we're on the, we're on the back lot at Desilu or Paramount right? It's not concrete. It's not real buildings. So I don't think this is a parallel Earth story at all. They did overdo it at the end of the second season. And they went into the third season with a memo floating around that said, we're not going to do any more parallel Earth stories unless they're really, really, really good. And Bob Justman was the one who was fighting against doing any at all. So I think this one gets under, it slips under it. I I wouldn't classify it as a parallel Earth story.
2: It is unanimous. I agree. And, th- and <laughs> think there's no coincidence here. We didn't randomly find a planet that happened to have an old west just like we have an old west. This is all constructed. I agree. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And if I may, I'm reading right here from a memo from eight, uh, April 16th, 1968, from Gene Roddenberry to Fred Freiberger. Dear Fred, I am not as concerned as you and Bob over doing a Western Star Trek. It will be a change of pace as long as we make it very clear, and he underlines very clear throughout, that it is not just another parallel planet story. There you go from Gene Roddenberry himself.
1: There you go from the great bird himself. <laughs>
2: By the way, that is really cool to have that memo right here, right at this moment. Is- <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, and the other thing that happens right at this moment is we hear a gunshot, and a chair goes through the window of a quote-unquote saloon, and out comes a guy, and we see him immediately killed by Morgan Earp.
1: And this is a great Western trope: someone getting shot in an old town. But the setting, like it's the, you know, it's the Mark just pointed out from Roddenberry's memo, is uh, it's a, a not a Western cliche at all. It is uh, not a parallel Earth. This is very much science fiction, and this is where we meet Morgan Earp, played by Rex Holman, who replaced. From what I read in your book, Mark, he replaced another actor mm-hmm. who was playing work and Earp in this scene. Is that right?
3: Right. And and I know the name of the actor. Not, I'd have to look in the uh, the call sheets and the shooting schedule. And I interviewed Vincent McEvity as well. Um, so I know the name of the actor, but I chose not to put it in the book. Uh, but he was apparently, Vincent was convinced that he was on drugs. And that's why they had to fire him. He couldn't remember his lines. He was getting very emotional about some stuff. So they fired him and they grabbed the other guy, put him in the role and then recast the role he was going to play only because they needed the guy who was going to play this character today. So they couldn't wait. So, hey, he's in dressing room. Let's get him out. We'll reshuffle the shooting schedule. So that's one of those things where we've looked at episodes like the alternate factor where the domino effect of replacing an actor destroyed the episode here's a case where they were able to glide around it they had a good guy right yeah. there they were able to get him and really he's perfect in that part yeah
1: oh yeah so that's rex holman who wound up playing the part of morgan erp and rex holman of course also another actor in this episode who just ran the gamut of uh, tv westerns back in the day like the rifleman wagon train rawhide Death Valley Days, The Big Valley, The Virginian, Gunsmoke. He did them all. And on the big screen, he was in the film version of The Hindenburg. And also, he played John in the beginning of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Remember the the, the, the character, Johnny, was like a bald character. And Cybok cured him of his pain. That actor was the same actor who played Morgan Earp.
3: In section wow. of the gun. I know, I never knew that. Now, Gene Roddenberry liked this actor. Uh, this this actor, when Gene first sent the list of actors to recommend for playing Spock in nineteen sixty four, there were only four names on the list that he sent to Desilu and NBC. One was Leonard Nimoy. He was the first name. The second was DeForest Kelly. The third was wow. Rex Holman. And the fourth was Michael Dunn. The
1: dwarf. So so Rex Hallman, who plays Morgan Earp in this episode, was the third name on the list of suggestions to play Spock. Four names by
3: from Gene Roddenberry. So he That's liked this correct. actor all the way back then. And uh, and if you look at the way he plays uh, Earp, very unemotional. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a quality Roddenberry saw in him, that he could play something like that, and why he was thinking of him for... Spock, But there was always a lot of uh, uh, debate about, oh, come on, DeForest Kelly couldn't have been on the list. I've got the memo. I was just looking at it before we did the show. From Gene Roddenberry, from uh, October of 64, four names, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Rex Holman, and Michael Dunn.
1: Mark Cushman, you just earned your pay for the week. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and he, the guy, he's he got a great look. And what's so interesting about the way the Urps are is – they're not, it's not that they're caricatures. It's like they're, they're iconic. You know, the way he moves, the way he looks, he is the iconic guy in black Western guy. And we examine the the body, it's dead, and McCoy is having
0: trouble believing this. Is this a dead man, Doctor? Very dead, Mr. Spock. That's one thing we can be sure of here. Death is real.
2: And this is where I go, no, it's not. Do you <laughs> actually think that there, there are any humans here at all? Like... It doesn't – this is where I just keep going, like, why are you all buying into this
1: so much? See, see, a lot of the questions that I had about this episode, Steve, like, especially during the rewatch, uh, and especially with regards to, like, why are the Melkotians putting our landing party through this? Why don't they just kill them off and get rid of the Enterprise and call it a day? Like, what? why the, the, the mumbo-jumbo of the, you know, the fake Western setting? But at this point, you know, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Chekhov – they have no idea that that death isn't real. They don't know that yet. Clearly, this is an illusion. And Spock especially knows about, about that they're telepaths, and telepaths are not people you want to mess around with. But I don't think they're there yet to go to, for, to, to realize that the death part isn't real. That comes later where it should in Act 4.
3: Well, you know, I, I was mentioning dreams before. I did a script for Star Trek Continues called "Divided We Stand. And in the episode, Kirk and McCoy never leave the ship. They're both in a coma. But they think, together, they think they're on the battlefield of of, uh, the Civil War. Mm. Kirk is wounded, and McCoy has to saw off his leg. But back on the Enterprise, Kirk, who's in a coma, his leg is dying. Mm. Because in his mind, he believes it's not there. So it just shows Mm. you the power of a dream, the power of belief. We can make ourselves sick. We can make ourselves well if we believe it. Uh, and, I, and in a dream, I think anything could happen. You can not wake up because the dream was too too terrible. So as you just said, Scott, they don't know if this is real or not. They may suspect it's not real. Uh, it may seem like it's an illusion to them. But they're seeing people die. And McCoy goes over and checks the body of Chekhov when he dies. And no pulse. So they're trying to make sense of whether it's real or not and whether it can really kill or not. Spock is the one who will come up with the solution. Right, that's right. Okay, I have a question. So is it that
2: actually these guys who beam down to this planet are just sitting motionless somewhere and all of this is playing in their heads? Or is it that they're walking around in a space where these illusions have taken on physical form like the holodeck?
1: You mean like the inner light episode of the next generation?
2: Right. Is this all in their minds or is this something that is kind of been, they're walking around through?
1: What a great, what a great question. It's a great question. That is absolutely possible. That is absolutely possible. Yeah. Well, and the
2: reason I bring it up is really from what you said, Mark, is that is that when we're in the dream, we believe the dream. Yeah. And it's because some part of our brain is being turned off to not realize that, oh, I was in my bedroom, and then I was in space, and then I was underwater. Like, and we're just, that's just what's happening, and we accept it. And it's like, if they're just all lying down, and this is being created in their minds, right. well, then they would just accept, yeah, that guy just died, and not question, you know.
3: Wow. You never that's thought great... about this before, but because you brought it up, I believe right now, they're still standing there in that fog. Right. Because that's the last place we saw them. And when we return, they're still standing just, in the same right. positions in the fog. I think they're standing there like zombies in that fog. And I think the book ending pieces of the episode tell you that. But I'd never thought about it before.
2: Well, and on the Enterprise at the very end, when we're with Chekhov, there's a line that's something like, maybe he's been here all the whole time. I mean, maybe they never been down.
1: That's wow. Oh, man. Boy, that just opens this episode a lot. That opens this episode uh, uh, in ways that I never even thought about. But great, great, great
3: observation, mister. But, but you know what? Um. That's, that's great writing because when you write something, you want to allow the audience to discuss it later and maybe find their own interpretation. And you're right. Gene Kuhn and, and Freiberger and Singer and none of them, when they finished writing that script and signed off on it and said, go film it, there's nothing in that script that, that keeps you from thinking, well, it's possible they never left the ship. Or if they did beam down, it's possible they never left that spot where they were standing in the fog. you know So we're, we're, we're able to interpret that however we think it can be. And whatever answer you come up with is correct.
2: We enter the bar where uh, the bartender is very happy to see Ike, and another person seems to be real happy to see them, but she's not happy to see Ike. She's happy to see Billy.
0: Billy! Oh, Billy!
1: That would be Sylvia played by Bonnie Beecher, who at one time was the girlfriend of Bob Dylan. Bonnie Beecher had a kind of a brief acting career. She was on TV shows like Peyton Place, The Fugitive, and Gunsmoke. Shortly after filming Spectre the Gun, she quit acting to form a circus and performing arts camp with her counterculture husband, Wavy Gravy. <laughs> oh, she was married to Wavy. She was married to Wavy Gravy. Oh. Wasn't Wavy Gravy in the Woodstock movie? Uh I don't remember if he I
2: know, I think he's one of the uh Mary Pranksters, and I met Wavy Gravy. You did? Yes, I worked in a copy store in Berkeley shortly after when I graduated from Cal, and he was a customer. Yeah. So you were one degree of separation from
1: Sylvia. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty
3: cool. (laughs) Um, Incidentally, um, you mentioned she was in Gunsmoke, but look who directed this, Vincent McGibbity. Right. The director always had a voice in casting. And so if you look down the list of these people, a lot of them were on Gunsmoke and shows that he had directed. You know, because he's going to naturally and like Rex Holman, he's going to bring back people that he's worked with and he knows he can count on.
1: uh, Ralph Sinetsky did that, too, with like Stephen Brooks and Obsession. Yeah, sure. And Sylvia is
2: very, very excited to see Billy and Chekhov has to play along. And I think Walter Koenig does a really good job of doing the levels. Of, of lying, of trying to say what she wants him to say, but not being that great at it.
1: Baby, I knew they couldn't keep you out of town. Oh, you knew that. Walter Koenig is fantastic in this episode. And I think of any of the episodes he did in the second or third season, this is his finest hour. This was the most that he had to do in an episode. Maybe, I guess, The Way to Eden was another Chekhov episode, but I mean, that was not a good episode, and Spectre of the Gun is. But, you know, going into season three, I think things were really looking good for Walter Koenig and Chekhov. Isn't that right, Mark?
3: Yeah, this, this is Walter's favorite episode. And mm. he had had a meeting with Roddenberry right before they started shooting, and Roddenberry said, and it's an interesting comment you made earlier, Scott, about uh, George Decay never really quite recovered from leaving the show for 10 weeks because that allowed the character of Chekhov to get explored further. They realized how good he was, how much the audience liked him, the comedy potential of the character and so forth. And so they never really kind of switched back to Sulu again after that. And so Walter was told he was going to have many, many more parts, important parts in episodes. But when they moved the show to 10 PM, that kind of killed a lot of that because you lost the young audience. But he loves this episode. It, you know, I love him in Gamesters, and I know you had him on for Gamesters of Triskelion, but if he had to pick between the two, he'd tell you Spectre the gun.
1: Yeah, yeah, we, we know. <laughs> uh, Maybe you shouldn't have. And pissed up at an opportunity to see you? Don't be silly. He's taking crazy chances with Morgan Urp right in the same room.
0: That's where
2: Kirk remembers that name, Morgan
0: Herb. Yes, of course. The man who kills on sight. Morgan.
2: He stands up. Morgan stands up, turns around. Morgan clears his gun, and we know from watching westerns what we're getting close to. Yeah, the draw. But Kirk does not know.
0: I seriously suggest you reseat yourself immediately, without moving a muscle of either hand. If I remember correctly, that would involve you in what was called the fast
1: draw. I think it's interesting that Spock knows more about Kirk's earth history than Kirk does himself. Yeah. And that's just one of the things that makes the relationship between Kirk and Spock so great is that there are things that Kirk is really great at Steve, like you pointed out many times, the way he observes and picks things up. And there are things that obviously Spock is so great at because he's just the smartest person in the room.
2: And Kirk opens up his hand and very slowly sits back down And up comes the bartender who says, you boys want your usual? And I have to say, I I am now comfortable saying that Montgomery Scott, who I love, is in fact an alcoholic.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Half a gallon of scotch. You know we ain't got nothing but bourbon. Unless you want corn whiskey.
1: The bartender is played by Charles Steele, who played a bartender on a TV show called Tombstone Territory. (laughs) Uh, He was on TV shows like Dennis the Menace, Mr. Novak, F Troop. And, of course, Bonanza, The Virginian, and Gunsmoke. And on the big screen, Steve, he was on The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and Westworld.
2: Oh, those are two very different kind of westerns.
0: Mm -hmm. You'll dirty yourself with this scum. Come on.
2: Get your head and go, Perry. And it looks like we're about to have a gunfight with Billy, with Chekhov and Morgan. But Kirk settles things down.
0: Now, we don't want any trouble. If you don't want any trouble, what are you doing in my town?
2: And he looks around and, of course, Earp is outnumbered.
0: Five of you. You'd like me to draw, wouldn't you? All right. I will. Soon enough.
1: Backs away soon enough. That was a close one.
0: Lucky there wasn't two of them.
2: There's a really weird line where the bartender says, you boys watch it. And Spock says,
0: I assure you, sir, we shall watch it. And everything extremely
1: closely. I like that look that Ed gives back to Spock, like, okay.
2: (laughs) Do you think, as Sylvia is paying all of her attention to Chekhov, that Kirk might be a little bit jealous?
1: You know, he sort of is acting a little like something is there. There's a look. Uh, uh, But I feel like whenever another woman on this show pays attention to somebody else, Kirk gets a little – like his ego is bruised a little. Remember – in Space Seed, when Kirk was talking mm-hmm. to McCoy about Marla MacGyver's her attention. She was playing uh, to the paying attention to Khan, and he says, "You know, you think uh, you know she's drawn to him." And McCoy says, "Well, there's no, there's no." law against romance, Jim, you know, I think he does get a little like his ego is bruised because he's so used to getting the getting the girl.
2: <laughs> and he says, he kind of tries to interrupt Chekhov who's getting all this affection. And Chekhov says, What
0: can I do, Captain? You know, we're always supposed to maintain good relations with the natives.
1: And, and I, also, I will say that that the, the paternal relationship that Kirk had over Chekhov, which we sort of established in Who Mourns for Adonai's I think we're seeing more of that here. Kirk is being really paternal to Chekov. Mm-hmm. He's he's you know this feels like like a there's a paternal relationship there that that I always liked uh, between those two characters.
2: Well, and I think from the moment Sylvia shows up, uh, Walter Kennedy plays all this great. He's gonna be a crew member, but most of his attention is on the girl. And then Kirk goes up to the bartender to try to convince him that he is not Ike Clanton by talking about his voice, his clothes. And the longer he talks, the funnier the bartender thinks this is. Yeah,
1: but Ed really starts to to, to lose it.
0: <laughs> we're not really here. We're from the future. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been born yet.
2: We cut to a, another half building, which says Wyatt Earp, town marshal. Uh, which, by the way, Virgil was the town marshal. Wyatt was not the town.
1: That's right. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Good morning, gentlemen. My name is James Kirk, and I'm afraid there's been some sort of misunderstanding.
1: So you have Wyatt Earp is played by Ron Sobel, who was on shows, of course, Wagon Train, Bonanza, Rawhide, Death Valley Days, The Virginian. On the big screen, he was in The Cincinnati Kid, True Grit, and Papillon. And then there's Charles Maxwell, who plays Virgil Earp, who was on TV shows like The Cisco Kid, Science Fiction Theater, Sea Hunt. Rawhide, and he was the radio announcer on Gilligan's Island. Oh. Remember that little transistor radio that never seemed to run out of battery juice? He was the radio announcer on that little transistor radio that they had.
2: I've not watched an episode of Gilligan's Island in at least 30 years or more. (laughs) I think I've made the right choice. (laughs) I think so, too. (laughs)
0: Well, I'm glad to meet you, Mr. Kirk.
1: (coughs) Virgil earp punches Kirk in the face. And the actor who plays him, Charles Maxwell, uh, I think he's great as Virgil earp. He's the, he's the only one of the earps who seems to have a little bit more than sort of this like deadpan, goat like, you know, monotone kind of, uh, you know, emotion. I, I like this guy.
2: Well, and I love that Kirk takes the first punch and then immediately puts him in an arm bar. And it's like real clear that Kirk could outfight Virgil in just a hand to hand fight.
0: Five o'clock, Clanton, is that clear? If you're in town at 5.01, we'll kill every one of you, whether you draw or not.
2: And that is the end of Act One. We're back in Act Two. Kirk is touching his mouth for where he got punched. Bones is cleaning him up. It obviously hurts. <laughs>
3: yeah. Morgan will kill you because he wants me.
0: With his outdated weapon. If he shoots at me, I will just step out of the way.
1: You can joke about it. I've seen him in action.
0: A lot of people and things have tried to kill me. You'd be surprised.
1: Walter is so good in this episode and his his chemistry uh with Bonnie Beecher is, is really, really good and and I just it's a shame that this is sort of like, you know, the peak. Uh instead instead of being like the beginning of a whole new season for Chekhov, this was the peak of, of his character. Uh, At least up until The Wrath of Khan, when he was, you know, certainly had a major role in that film.
0: Where are we going, Captain?
1: To exercise the better part of valor. We're at the city limits, and we try to leave the city and get hit by a force field. So the force field, whose idea was the force field, Mark?
3: Well, that is in all the drafts. And I'm looking at uh, the script right now, page 33. Yep. And what we see on the screen is just the beginning of the scene, where they touch it. And you see that flare, and they start kind of feeling their way around, and they realize that they're all covered by a force field. But here's what we don't see, and they filmed this. They had a stunt man out there and everything else, but they cut it out because the episode was running long. So if I may. Please. Um, yeah, yeah. They feel along the invisible wall. It is endless. One of them says, well, that answers that question, force field. They look up as a rider approaches from the town and waves cheerfully at them. The rider says, hi, Ike, hi, boys, good luck tonight. The rider passes through the invisible wall and rides away. Our people stare after him, frustrated. Kirk gets an idea. He looks around, spots a horse tied up nearby. He crosses to the horse and he mounts. And he rides through the invisible wall, except. uh, Let's get to that point. It's uh, yes, indeed. Or actually, as Gene, uh, Gene Kuhn wrote it, Yes, indeedy, the horse gets through, but the rider is swept off with great force as he is given, as he, as he is even within the city limit sign, knocked to the ground with great force. Another angle is Scotty McCoy, Spock, and Chekhov dash up to their downed captain, who's having some difficulty getting his wind back.
1: So basically what happened was Kirk got on a horse thinking he was going to ride through the force field. The horse got through... But Kirk did not Kirk so you're not telling you're, you're you're telling us that they actually filmed the scene yes. they got a horse they got a horse onto stage what stage 10 yeah, and,
3: they put it on and, stage 10 they had a and, they had a stunt rider with a harness under his shirt and a rope and when he rode exactly. up to that spot they yanked him backwards off the horse the horse continued to go forward he's on the ground now we run up and it's Kirk on the ground Get rid of the stunt man, Chekhov says. Are you all right, Kirk? Gasping, there was a flaw to your logic. Yes, of course, Kirk says. I'm not. I'm not a horse. And Spock says <laughs> Precis- precisely, Captain. They help him rise. They hear a clock striking. They react to close up on the clock. So they actually try to get through that force field, but only the horse passes. Well,
1: that's a lot of money to get a horse and to film that scene and to end up not using yeah, it. Yeah, and it
3: was not cut. It was in the final draft and in the shooting schedule. They have a stuntman there. They have a horse there. It didn't get into the episode for whatever reason.
0: We have to find a way to put the herbs out of action. Is there anything that exists here and now that could help us out of this trap? All those Western in Cossack's head were poisonous snakes and cactus plants.
2: And that gives Kirk the idea to ask Bones if there's something he can make. And Bones
0: says, A tranquilizer. Of course, Jim, I can make a tranquilizer. I could make a device to deliver it on target. First, Bones, the ingredients you require. I know the place to get the proper drugs.
2: And we cut to the dentist. And there's a guy in a chair. Now, what's funny is, I didn't know about the gunfight at the OK Corral when I first saw this. So I didn't go, oh, that's Doc Holliday. But had I seen this after knowing about the gunfight, I would have known at this moment that he had just walked in on Doc holiday.
1: Well, I love that. You don't see him at first. You see yeah. this, this person in a chair is, his face is covered. What you do see is the barber who's played by Ed McCready, who was, this is actually the fifth time he was in a Star Trek episode. He played one of the patients in the chair in dagger of the mind. Mm-hmm. He played the, uh, the, the, the character who wanted his bike back. In the beginning of Miri, he was covered with all the makeup after he was affected by the disease. He was in Patterns of Force. He was the chief medical officer of the USS Exeter in the Omega Gory. who say, get down there fast. Captain Tracy is, and then he dies. Uh, And all these episodes were directed by Vincent McAveety. So Mm -hmm. there you go, Mark. You're right. Uh, Directors like to use use their favorites, uh, people they can trust, now sitting in the chair – we're going to see is Doc Holiday played by Sam Gilman. Now here is the revelation about Sam Gilman. So when we were doing our deep dive of Metamorphosis, our guest Ralph Sinetsky, who directed the episode told us that the voice of the companion was in fact played or voiced by Elizabeth Hush. She was the actual voice of the companion. As it turns out, Sam Gilman who played Doc Holiday was married to Elizabeth Hush, who voiced the companion. So so there's a connection. He was also in shows like Have Gun, Will Travel, Dragnet, Shane, The Life and Times of Wyatt Earp. And on film, he was in movies like PT-109, The Missouri Breaks, One-Eyed Jacks, and Every Which Way But Loose.
2: And McCoy, not knowing that anything is threatening, despite the fact that the barber seems very nervous, yeah. is looking over at
1: this, you know –
2: Display of different chemicals.
0: That stuff ain't mine. It belongs to him. You'd better ask him.
2: And the way Doc Holliday gets up. Yeah. Very theatrical. You want it now?
0: My name is McCoy. I'm a doctor.
1: McCoy is trying to connect to this guy, doctor to doctor. Like, finally, someone who speaks my language. But this guy doesn't see Leonard McCoy. He sees... McClowry.
0: Well, my name is still Holliday. Doc Holliday.
1: And he's like, uh, "You see the light going on in McCoy's eyes?" Like, "Oh, okay, I know who you are."
0: <laughs> the emergency is real. I need these things. Your emergency sure is real. Well,
2: Doc Holiday laughs and says, "Yeah, take whatever you want. Take my bag. Yeah, take Please. my bag."
0: <laughs> Only, best you be finished before five o'clock. That is my intention, Doctor. Because at one minute past five. You'll find a hole in your head right from this gun.
1: When he picks up the shotgun and that music sting on the shotgun, that's uh, th- that actor, Sam Gilman, is extremely effective. And and so was the Forrest Kelly's reaction. That's a great scene. I think this is a great scene.
2: It, it is funny how in most of these versions, Doc Holliday is frequently the most interesting character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then Chekhov come, meets up with Sylvia, who's been shopping. And they sit down. There really is a ton of Chekhov in this episode. Yeah, and they have a really sweet scene where she's, you know, flirting with him, wants him to ask her what's in the bag. She's going to make uh, a dress for this dance that's coming up, and maybe that dress could be a wedding dress.
1: right I'm afraid that wouldn't be possible. And of course, he doesn't. I mean, that's what's great is that uh, Chekhov shows restraint. Like he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to put her in any kind of danger.
2: One of the signs of good writing is where you can write someone who says one thing that means a specific thing in their reality, and the other person can completely understand what they say, except they have an entirely different interpretation.
0: I am not someone you can marry. If only I could make clear to you what I really am. Do you think I don't know, Billy Claiborne? You are a cattle rustler and a horse thief, and I don't care what else.
2: That she has this image of who she is and loves that guy anyway. And just as they're about to kiss, there is Morgan Earp.
1: I warn
0: you, and stay away.
1: <laughs> Chekhov is—you know—he's got the bloody nose. This is really a dramatic scene, and the build-up to it—you know—with this really tender moment between Chekhov and Sylvia. And 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 Walter is is just really just delivers a really great performance in this episode in this scene, and now you're building up to this big conflict between Morgan and Chekhov, and and you know Chekhov is standing there like with his arms to his side, like looking like he's gonna draw, but yep. he doesn't. But he walks towards Morgan Erb. Morgan draws, shoots Chekhov in the the stomach, and Chekhov dies, or does he? Sylvia
2: screams, and Spock and Kirk run out of the bar. There's nothing I can do, Jim. And now Wyatt and Virgil have both showed up, and this is pretty scary. And I love the way they frame the shot, which is we have the cluster of our heroes kneeling over Chekov's body, framed by the black outlines of the Urps. It's a really nicely set up yeah. shot. Mm-hmm. And Scotty is ready to go.
0: Captain, let me know yeah come on captain let him
1: i love that line he goes, yeah go yeah. on captain let him <laughs> yeah.
0: they're trying to push us into something we're not ready for and it is not yet our time
1: by the way is uh scotty's
2: hair different in season three
1: yes it is it's the, it was coned back for the first few episodes of season three mark do you have any any background into why jimmy doings uh, hairstyle changed in se- twice in season three
3: they didn't like the hairdo he had in the in the first two years, especially second season, where he was greasing it down, kind of the greasy bangs. Yeah. So they wanted to get him a new haircut. And they tried that out for about, oh, I think the first eight episodes. And then Roddenberry sent him to a very expensive barber to get the, the haircut that we first saw in the episode, The Empath. And that's what he kept mm-hmm. through the rest of the season. So, yeah, that comb back look didn't work too well for him. It made him look a little harsh. He, he didn't look yeah. as, because they used Scotty for a lot of comic relief. And with the, the bangs combed back like that, uh, he didn't look comical. He looked very serious. So let's say he let the bangs come hot. back in. Exactly. He looked better at that point. But but everybody, including him, was in agreement that the the greasy bangs from the second season weren't working too well. I didn't mind them. How about you guys? Uh,
1: I I didn't mind it. I liked his hairstyle in the first two seasons. I hate this hairstyle.
2: I I think it's just what you
1: said. It makes his face look hard
2: and severe. Yeah, I I really don't like it. Uh, We're in the saloon. It's later. Everyone is sort of mourning and trying to deal with the fact that Chekhov has just died. Spock is trying to, you know, focus on what they have to do.
0: Not this minute, Spock. It takes us a little longer.
2: And now we get what I would say is a more forced McCoy-Spock sort of moment. Yeah. Mm. It's one of those McCoy comes after Spock in a way that I don't really
0: buy so much. He says, You talk about another man's feelings. What do you feel, Spock? My feelings are not subject for discussion, Doctor. Because there are no feelings to discuss.
1: So here's the thing about this scene. I agree with you, Steve. As much as I appreciate the sentiment of having a Spock McCoy moment that's very, I would say, reminiscent of the jail cell scene yeah. from uh, Bread and Circuses, and that scene was also written by Gene Kuhn, in this case it feels contrived and feels a little out of place, just like some of the digging that McCoy did to Spock in the Immunity Syndrome. I wasn't quite buying it this time. And, you know, for all these years, you know, growing up watching this episode so many times, I just sort of, okay, you know, it's a it's a moment between Spock and McCoy and they've had many. But in this case, during the rewatch, I noticed that, yeah, it feels a little forced. So I agree with you.
2: The clock rings four. And I do love those hovering, floating cult clocks. I think it's a great design choice. And then Spock starts to go over the historical events. And he says, you know, each of us represents a member of the Clanton game lists all the names.
0: Then Mr. Chekhov would be the other Billy, would he not? William Claiborne, that's right. But did not William Claiborne survive the battle at the OK Corral?
1: And that music sting and that look on Kirk's face, that like aha moment, that epiphany. And by the way, Eichlin also survived. But this is the midpoint of this episode where the, the tide starts to change.
2: It totally is. and there, But there is a thing of like, look, I understand we're going to play, play fast and loose with history. But if the point, the beat of this moment is I remember the exact fact of history and that is going to change our plan. And that exact fact is wrong. It's kind of it's the, that's weak writing. Yeah. You should have got something
0: else. How's the tranquilizer coming? I'll have it ready
2: before Spock. Spock? Another hour. Well, it can't be another hour. It's already after four. If it's another
0: hour, that's too late. Negotiating with them could buy us more time, Captain. But not with the herbs. I've tried that. That's out.
3: It it almost feels like those lines uh, should have come before Kirk's realization that it doesn't have to happen like it just happened. You know? Because they're Mm -hmm. still thinking that everything has to play that way uh, with the whole whole gas bomb and everything else. It almost feels like uh, some of these lines of dialogue should have been moved. And if the script had maybe been rewritten one more time, perhaps they would have. But they're all great lines regardless. The logic may be uh, a little thin in some areas. uh, But, you know, like Scott, you were just talking about, both of you were saying that the scene between McCoy and Spock felt a little forced. I agree with you. But I also remember liking the fact that uh, when McCoy said, you of all people should care you worked so closely with Chekhov. And that's kind of a nod back to some of the early, early Chekhov episodes uh, where he was learning from Spock. And there was one episode where Kirk even said, that boy's spending too much time around Spock, right? Yep. And, and so it kind yep. of, it, it was a nod back to that early part of the relationship. I like that part, but you're right. I think, I think this part of the script could have used another polish, if nothing else. Yep. By the way, in all the drafts of the script, except the last one, they administered the, uh, the tranquilizer by DART, not by a gas pump. And here's the NBC memo. <laughs> He's
1: shoving it up. Yep. So for all you May 13th, people listening.
3: 1968. It says, please find some other way to test the tranquilizing solution as throwing the DART needle across the room into Scotty's extended buttock is not acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> in the in, in the script, Scotty had kind of leaned over the bar, taken a drink. He kind of stuck his butt out a little bit. And they threw a dart at his, at his rear end to try to knock him out. NBC said, you're not going to do that. And they even gave a reason. They said darts and other similar sharp objects are easily available. And especially in the hands of a child, imitation could be extremely dangerous. Wow. But this is interesting. They, if you read the script, uh, Scotty's given a lot of funny lines and funny yeah. actions, like sticking his rear end out. But as you noted, Steve, with that new hairdo, very little of that comedy comes off as funny. The lines are still there, but because he looks so serious, and he, and what was the word you used, Steve? Um, harsh, severe, hard, hard, hard. yeah. Uh, the comedy that Gene Kuhn wrote into the script doesn't play as well. And it's all because of that damn haircut.
2: (laughs) I keep thinking about this idea of them, it all being in their brain. And now I'm reimagining things you could have done with the episode. And one of them is that if they made it a more dreamlike quality, like Kirk, like they were not remembering things, like there's something I needed to do and that we made it more surreal, all of this would work better.
3: Yeah, I I think, and I'm only talking as a screenwriter, uh, because also in dreams, a lot of times if you think about your dreams, you're interacting with somebody, and then a moment later it's an entirely different person. And yet you, you continue interacting as if it was always that other person. Well, certainly you could have done things like that in the script, but I think it would have started to become confusing for the audience. And so if Kirk is starting to not remember things, I think the audience wouldn't think, well, that's more dreamlike. I think they would start to think there's some kind of a disease going on in their brain or whatever. Uh, That fog they were breathing did something to them. Uh, So I think sometimes when you write a script and you only have 52 minutes of screen time, you've got to pick which one of the things you're going to do. Because if you try to put them all in there, the audience is going to get lost.
2: Totally. Totally. It, it, it would, and this would be a hard thing to pull off. You know, there's the, there's, there's basic screenwriting, all screenwriting's hard, but there's some moves that are advanced and this would be really hard. But I also go like, what would be really interesting is if Kirk was becoming more of the old West gunfighter, because there's an implication in the final yeah. moment. Is, well, that's what things were like is what if he were becoming more of Ike Clanton as this went on, and then had to resist the instinct to kill at the end.
3: Yeah, when you expand a, a, a one-hour TV script into a two-hour movie, that's when you start get to start going into those kind of things because you got the time and the space. Uh, but with a, a squished-down running time, yeah, you got to pick which one of the ideas you're going to play out. Any of these could have been really good if you'd had a, a longer time period to play it out. So
2: we can't negotiate with the herbs. But then Kirk says, there is
1: one other place I can try. And I love this next scene. Me too. It's Me too. such a great scene. It's so well acted. Kirk goes to Johnny Beam, the sheriff. Oh, yeah. And the acting between these two guys and the way the wind is blowing and the wind yep. is howling. It's it's such a great dramatic scene. Like, it's very, very suspenseful and intense.
0: I want you to stop the fight. Stop it? Who wants to stop it? I sure don't. You don't? I do now. Since
1: when does a Clanton
0: run crawling to the law for help? How else is he going to get justice? From this! Holds up the gun.
1: The other thing that makes the scene so great is as the episode progresses, as Specter of the Gun progresses, and everything that they're trying doesn't work, they can't get through the force field. And now... Like they tried to reason with Morgan Earp and they tried to reason with Virgil and Wyatt. McCoy tried to connect with the Doc Holliday. Nothing is working. Nothing is working. The Melkotians are intent on having the Earps kill the clans at the old K. Corral. And as the desperation of the situation increases, you can see the desperation in Kirk. Also increased.
0: There must be plenty of decent people in this town who don't like the herbs. Let's organize. Don't talk nonsense.
1: The people in this town are counting on you
0: to get rid of the herb forum, and the people
1: better wake up and let the law work for them. And I think Shatner's
3: performance is right on point. And and the actor he's playing opposite is very good too. Uh, you know, Steve, you were talking Absolutely. about the real history of of the OK Corral, and you mm-hmm. said it was more of a power struggle. This scene speaks of it Mm -hmm. half the town is on their side half's on the other side they're using them to overthrow the other lawmen that are in the town it was really the sheriffs against the marshals so this scene really actually uh touches on the true history of of tombstone
2: well and there really was a sheriff johnny beam and he really was on the side of the clantons he really was against the irks wow And, and what i love there's um a guy named Sandy Meisner, who's one of the great acting teachers after sort of Strasbourg and the Actor studio, Sandy Meisner is one of the guys who split off, and he would do all these uh, mirror exercises. And what it would be was you'd have two people facing each other, and they would say the same words back and forth. And part of the goal was to really listen, and that your energy, the energy that I hear, is going to affect the energy that I put out. And I think if you watch Shatner, this guy playing the sheriff, Shatner escalates and he escalates. You can feel the energy playing off each other in this way. And I love the climactic moment where, because he's going.
0: Can I get can just kill him. It's I can't just kill him. murder him. I can't kill him. Kill him any way you can.
1: It's such an intense scene. Let me ask you a question. Kirk is like, could not have been more clear. I can't murder them. I can't kill him. Do you think that that being is, is hearing something different from Kirk. Like we're seeing Kirk say, I can't kill him. And, and BM is just like, no, you gotta kill him. Yeah, like, like why is Beam like so intent on having the Clantons kill the Earps? Like why doesn't yeah. BM do something? about it?
3: It's the same thing Steve was talking about before uh, the, the checkoff Bonnie scene when he was saying that there's so much about me. And she was saying, I know everything about you. Right. He's making one statement. She's hearing it in a different way. Same thing in this scene. Uh, The way the sheriff is hearing it is, I can't just kill them, meaning I'll be guilty of murder. I could get arrested. And the sheriff is saying, There'll be no questions asked. honest." So they're both having two different conversations. One of them is saying, I am not a person who can do that. And the other one is saying, nobody's going to ask any questions. That's the brilliance of the way the script is written. Hearing, hearing the two of you read a lot of the dialogue, it's so powerful, you know, and I'm visualizing the scenes in my mind. I haven't watched the episode in a couple of years, but it's really a very well-written script. And I think you guys feel it as you're reading the lines. And one of the things about a great script is the fact that the dialogue, you can have two characters who have no idea what each other is talking about. They're having a very intimate, intense conversation, yep. but they're both having different conversations at the same time
2: first of all i 100% agree and that's what that's what's so weird about this episode there's so many things that are so good and scott your question is exactly right is that why is the sheriff doing this and that goes to the weakness i think of the episode is the milk is what are they trying to because they set all this up they set up the sheriff to do this thing what mm-hmm. is it that they're trying to do and that's where this doesn't quite all make
0: sense yeah
3: here we have we have to just assume guess because uh, Gene Kuhn's not here to tell us. But Scott has said a couple times how the parallel between this and ARENA. And so I think the answer is they're yeah. being tested. They've already come out and said, you are a disease. Don't come any closer. We already know they've been monitoring American television from uh, some dialogue that was omitted out of the script. And so, but they weren't able to stop the Earthlings from coming. So now you find out if they're as bad as their television shows make them look. And so it's very understated, Mm -hmm. but because it's Gene Kuhn, because he wrote Arena, I think it answers your question. I think we can make that presumption.
2: But of course that television thing's not in the show, you know? Yeah, Yeah, it's not in the script. Because the way the show is, is we are reclusive. We don't want anyone around. We said, stay away. You didn't stay away. Now we're going to kill you. That's what the show is. But, that's not quite how it ends up.
3: Yeah, they never say we are reclusive. They say you are disease. And so now here's a here's a lab test to find out if it truly is a disease. So no, nobody comes right out and says mm-hmm. it. But sure. I think being that it's a Gene Raccoon script, uh, I think we can assume that the Mekotians at this point are going to say prove to us that you're not a disease. And so they're trying to make it easy for Kirk to kill this guy, kill any of them. So we're making it really easy for you to show us what monsters you are.
2: If you had one more line where they, the Melkotians said, you are violent and barbarous, then, then this would have made more sense. I think. Yeah, I agree. We're back in the saloon, and Spock and McCoy are very proud of themselves.
0: How long will it take the tranquilizer to have effect? Three or four seconds. How did you manage to test it? It has not been tested. It's not necessary, Captain. It's very simple. Nothing can go wrong.
2: The statement nothing can go wrong is a stupid statement. No one who's dealt with life would have made that statement. Up to now, everything
0: has gone wrong. I want to test it enough.
2: And Scotty's going to volunteer as long as he can be awake. He takes
0: a drink of bourbon and he says... It's to kill the pain. But this is painless. Well, you should have warned me sooner, Mr. Spock. Fire away.
1: Another parallel between Specter of the Gun and Arena. So in Arena, Kirk is on an asteroid and he's, right? You know where Mm -hmm. I'm going with? Where am I going with this, Steve? You take it from here.
2: (laughs) I I never thought about this until you just brought it up, but Kirk is on an asteroid where he has to take primitive ingredients in order to make a weapon that's powerful enough to kill the Gorn and that's where he invents gunpowder. And now we're on a planet where we have to use primitive ingredients that are powerful enough to take out the herbs. And Never and, thought about
1: it. and unlike the jury rigged weapon in Arena, which very much works, the jury rigged weapon, the tranquilizer, does not work. Inspector of the gun. What's
2: so dumb about it, by the way, is that, that you know we got this little can that we're going to pop open for the gas. Spock is standing two feet away from Scotty when he opens this thing up. Now, presumably, this is something we're going to throw like a grenade over to the herbs. So you can't be, they're all, you can't be two feet away. It would yeah, knock you yeah. out too. Um, and then Scotty just sitting there, you know, taking long drags out of this thing, trying to have it go out. It's like, look, if it hasn't affected you now, this thing ain't going to work.
1: Yeah, the same working. <laughs>
0: Should have worked. Did you inhale the gas, Scotty? Aye, deeply. You still feel all right? Oh, never felt better. No dizziness, no sweating, no palpitations. And I love
1: Kirk just going.
0: It doesn't work.
1: Kirk is almost like throwing up his hands. But again, I'm thinking back to this idea that you had, where they're not being affected, not even Kirk and Spock and McCoy by the gas, because they're already laying down somewhere in the fog, or maybe they're still even on the Enterprise, and they're not even really there. This is all not even not only right. this an illusion, but this is a dream. The, the, the thing,
2: again, it goes back to this, like, not thinking that we're in the middle of illusions, is, is, they, is they're going, like, no, it had to work correctly. And it's like, McCoy, how do you know what you thought was in that bottle was in that bottle? Like, there's no, you know what I mean? There's, there's so many unknowns in this to, to be so sure that this had to work. But that is what they say.
0: Captain, you don't seem to understand. It did not function, but it must function. Nothing could go wrong, Captain. It should work. A scientific fact. But if the tranquilizer does not function, which is clearly impossible, then a radical alteration of our thought patterns must be in order. And this
2: is the beginning of the solution. Yeah.
0: We need a weapon. Don't have to worry about that now, Jim. Look at the clock. And it's ten minutes to five.
2: And in ten minutes, they'll have to be at the OK Corral. And he says, well... We're going to wait right
0: here until well after five o'clock. We're not going to move from this spot.
1: That's what you think, says the milk (laughs) The
2: camera pushes in and suddenly we're at the OK Corral. And that is the end of Act 3.
1: And boy, are we in the OK Corral. And boy, is it windy. The wind is blowing. The wind is howling. Leaves and tumbleweeds are blowing all over the place. The angry red sky is as dark as we have seen it. This is a very ominous, foreboding setting. Another great element of this episode I, I this is a stellar episode one of the series best
2: and they try to get out force field's not going anywhere better stand and fight good
0: if they want to fight let's give them a fight they're experts have gotten fighting we don't have a chance
2: i do think that kirk would have been coming up with some kind of strategy at this moment of something that they can do
0: Spock, you've got something a fact captain physical laws simply cannot be ignored. Existence cannot be without them. What do you mean, Spock? I mean, Doctor, that we are faced with a staggering contradiction. The tranquilizer you created should have been effective.
2: I love the way, when they write Spock well, his language, I love it.
1: I Mm -hmm. love that. I love that line. A staggering contradiction. Isn't that a great line? never noticed that line before until this rewatch, Steve.
0: Doctor, In your opinion, what killed Mr. Chekhov? A piece of lead in his body. Wrong. His mind killed him. Well, come on, Spock. If you've got the answer, tell us. Physical reality is consistent with universal laws. Where the laws do not operate, there is no reality. All of
1: this is unreal. Everything that you were talking about before, Steve, now the other guys get it. Like, yeah. okay, th- Right. Like, if we believe that this is not real, then it is not real.
2: The, this line, I think, is just a really important sci- sci-fi line, which is...
0: We judge reality by the response of our senses. Once we are convinced of the reality of a given situation, we abide by its rules.
2: And, and by the way, not to make a big thing about it, the actual world is almost nothing like what we sense that it is. Because our brain is doing all this stuff all the time. Like just the visual spectrum, we only see a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of what actual, all the light that are around us. And we go, that's the important stuff. But it it's not all of reality. There's a lot more reality.
1: Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. If we do not allow ourselves to believe that the bullets are real, they cannot kill us. Exactly.
1: Uh, before we go further, I got to ask Mark Cushman. Mark, is this how the earlier versions of the last gunfight, the teleplay, is this, was this the original ending? with this mind meld and all this, or was there a different ending to the earlier versions of, of Gene Coon's, the last gunfight?
3: I'm, I'm quite sure based on memory, I do have the drafts in front of me, but I'm quite sure that this is all consistent uh, to my memory. And I'm just glancing at it. It is as well. Now this was all there. And, and and I'm thinking as I'm listening to you guys, that whoever wrote matrix certainly watched this episode and in particular paid attention to some of the lines of dialogue you were just reading because they're all hooked up to things. They're all dreaming and yet they're interacting within these dreams. I mean, so much of this stuff comes out of Star Trek, you know? Wow.
2: Mark, I swear to God about halfway down the page of the notes that I was just reading, I wrote the words the guys from the Matrix watched this episode. Yeah, <laughs> I swear.
1: And, I and exactly the guys have... in the Matrix were hooked up to a device in which they, they, they were like in this other world. And that goes exactly back to your your question, Steve. Like maybe they're not even really there. Maybe they're lying down somewhere hooked up to some machine or maybe not even hooked up to a machine.
2: Yeah. Well, and once you once you fully understand and can see the matrix, you can dodge bullets because they're not real. Mm-hmm. None of it actually wow. exists.
1: Oh my God. Wow, that's great. <laughs> um the
2: problem is, is that while Spock is sure that the bullets are not real, nobody else could be that sure.
0: Spock, a Vulcan mind meld. Very well, sir.
2: I think this might be my favorite Vulcan mind Melt sequence, both because it's multiple people and because of the way it's intercut. And then when it's intercut with the herbs coming, it is so
1: cool. What a great, absolutely, I completely agree the way this next setup. So so clearly they're gonna to have to use the Vulcan mind melt. And as the clock strikes five, and as the Earths look at their clocks, and two of them get up, and as they're walking towards the OK Corral, and then like they're joined by by uh, Virgil, and then they're joined by Doc Holiday, one by one. And at the same time, one by one of them go to the OK Corral. We're seeing one by one of the Enterprise crew. Get the Vulcan mind meld and with the score and the cinematography and the wind blowing and the wind howling and and all of this. This is absolutely one of the one of the great scenes, especially in the third season.
2: Well, and I said way back in The Enemy Within that Star Trek is not afraid to be theatrical. They're not married to pure realism and that this is the ultimate episode of that. Mm-hmm. And the herbs they're in step, in sync with the music. And one person is standing, looking at camera as the as the guys come up behind them. And then he joins in step with them. But it's oh, like great. a musical. Yeah. And and again, for me, when I was directing theater, it's like that aesthetic of just messing with reality. I think it had a big influence on me. And we're getting closer and closer. And we've gone through all of our guys with the Vulcan mind meld.
1: I like when he's giving the mel- mel- mind meld to McCoy and... Spock says, they cannot hurt you, for they do not exist. And McCoy repeats back to Spock, Mm -hmm. they do not exist. And while McCoy is saying the words, they do not exist, you see Spock mouth those words in unison with McCoy. Absolutely theatrical, Steve, on top of everything else in this moment.
2: Each one they shoot slightly differently. And with Kirk, we're on the profile, then the camera kind of moves around to we see his
1: eye. They are
0: lies. Falsehoods, specters,
3: without body, they are to be ignored. So you asked God about the title. That's the line right there. So after yeah, it was yeah. filmed and they're watching the dailies, the the power of that line, sometimes you don't feel it when it's in a script. But when you watch that scene and they started cutting it together, they said that's the title of the episode.
2: The Erps show up. They come into the OK Corral. They face each other. Uh, By the way, the real gunfight outside the photography studio or whatever, they actually were six feet apart
1: when they opened fire on each other,
2: which is pretty crazy. They were pretty close. And a whole bunch of them, most of them survived, you know, so (laughs) not the best shots.
1: OK, one thing about the way the scene is directed. So you got you got our four guys standing there and it's a great camera angle with Spock and then Kirk and then, you know, McCoy and Scotty. And you've, the cinematography, the way the shot is lit and you got, you know, the Earps and uh, Doc Holliday and you hear Uh-oh. and they have to be provoked. So Kirk just slaps his hand on his gun and it's like fire away. And as they're firing, you know, you see our, our landing party, you see Kirk, Spock, McCoy and Scotty just standing there, that they're standing in front of a fence and the bullets are coming through the fence, like, like all over the place, and our guys are not being affected at all. So it was actually Vincent Mac-Evity's, uh idea to have the fence being pulverized by the bullets.
2: And I love the Erp's reaction. It's like, okay, well, let's draw the other gun and open fire again.
1: They run out of bullets, and then Kirk starts walking towards uh, Wyatt Earp slowly and Wyatt is walking towards him, firing one by one, and it's not affecting him. And then Kirk just springs into action and starts punching away until Wyatt is on the ground. Then he grabs him by the scruff of the neck, pulls out his gun, cocks the, cocks the gun, and then shakes his head, no, and puts the gun back and lets him go. That's the moment from Arena says, I won't kill you do what you hear. You're going to have to get your entertainment someplace else.
2: And it's what is one of the key Kirk philosophies. I'm not going to kill today. Exactly. Is that he makes that choice and the moment he makes that choice. And I love that we get a reaction shot from Spock right as this happens. And then the ERPs disappear. And then we all disappear. And we're on the bridge of the Enterprise examining Chekhov. Captain, I
0: don't understand. Neither do I. He's in perfect health.
2: What happened? Where have I been? And the, this is the line that made me think about whether or not it's all in their
0: heads. Right here, it seems.
2: Because it's weird, by the way, that we go right back to the bridge examining Chekhov. There's no, like, we skip time.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. Oh. Like, what happened in between that moment when, when Kirk lets go of wide Earp and they're back on the Enterprise? Like, like, were they even in Tombstone? Were they even in this facade? Were they elsewhere on the planet? Or were they... Never actually leave the Enterprise. It's, it's great that it's so open to interpretation, but your perception of the situation actually really fits. But
0: that girl, she was so beautiful, so real. Do you remember anything else? No. Good. Perhaps that explains why he's here. Nothing was real to him except the girl. So I think
2: if they were really in town, in Tombstone, and all this stuff was really happening, I think this explanation is BS. But if it was all in their heads and they were all dreaming, then I think this explanation totally makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) And now the Malkotian object is starting to emit some highly unstable whatever they put on red alert, they put on their shields, and then it's getting more and more dangerous and they're about to fire their phasers when it explodes. And we hear,
0: Captain Kirk, you did not kill. Is this the way of your kind?
1: And this is where Kirk just springs into action. This is the Kirk, but the risk is our business, Kirk. This is the Kirk, we're on a thousand planets and spreading out. Uh, this is the Kirk of in every revolution, there's one man with a vision. This is just a great Kirk moment.
0: We fight only when there's no choice. We prefer the ways of peaceful contact. I speak for a vast alliance of fellow creatures who believe in the same thing. We have sought you out to join us. Our mission is still one of peace. Approach our planet and be welcome.
1: All is well on the Enterprise in Star Trek.
2: And our last moment
0: is... Captain, may I ask a question? You needn't answer if it seems too personal. I'm sure I'll be able to give you an answer, Mr. Spock. This afternoon, you wanted to kill, didn't you? But he didn't kill, Mr. Spock. But he wanted to, Doctor. Is that the way it seemed to you, Mr. Spock? Yes, Captain. Mr. Spock, you're absolutely right. That's exactly the way it was. Mankind ready to kill. That's the way it was in 1881. I wonder how humanity managed to survive. Kirk's response
1: is great. He says, We
0: overcame our instinct for
1: violence. And he just shoots McCoy a look. McCoy just, like, nods, like, winks at him. And then Spock just raises the eyebrow, walks off. Kirk slowly looks towards the view screen. And there we come to the end of Spectre of the Gun with one of the better coonisms and definitely the end of one of the very finest episodes of the third season, if not Star Trek as a whole.
2: Scott, did people have things to say about this episode after it yes, was done? Yes,
1: they sure did. Robert H. Justman said, I felt very strongly for that episode, and I thought it was one of the best of the third season, maybe the best one. Walter Koenig said, I'd say Spectre of the Gun was my favorite episode in which I actually participated because I did go to the planet. I got to wear a holster and had guns and got killed and got the girl and all that good stuff. James Doohan said, kind of fun and well done too. It's the only time Scotty does a mind mob with Spock And I tried to have Scotty look extremely creeped out by the thing. Mm -hmm. And then Vincent McAviti said on his last episode, which was not his choice for this to be his last episode, he said, it's interesting that what little fan mail I get in my life actually pertains to that show. People love it, which I can't believe because I don't. (laughs) (laughs) And I got all those quotes from These Are The Voyages, season three, written, by our special guest, Mark Cush. Mark, I'm just curious, you know, you wrote the books on on Star Trek. I mean, you know, these these are the Voyage's books are fantastic. After this deep dive conversation, I'm wondering, did you have any epiphanies that made you reconsider what you thought of Spectre of the Gun?
3: Yeah, Uh, well, before I wrote the books, I had no idea. Uh, that it was Bob Justman's idea to do the set design the way they did it, and it was a result of um, budget concerns. I had no idea that Gene Kuhn wrote the the script. Uh, It was just a name on the screen that said Lee Cronin. And even though you can find so much of this stuff now on Wikipedia and Memory Alpha, when I was writing these books, there wasn't a lot there. And a lot of what was there was wrong. Uh, I had to go in and bring all this stuff out of the show files and so forth. So now it's it's more generally known, uh, but it was fun for me. I, you know, I was turning down a lot of good paying script jobs and directing jobs to do this because I had always wondered about so many of these episodes and I couldn't find the information I wanted to find. And so that's what when Roddenberry gave me permission to dive into the files, I wasn't going to say no. You know, I knew it was going to take years. I want to share something with you guys right now, uh, because we've been talking about this throughout the episode, uh, throughout your podcast, is about them going directly back to the ship from the OK Corral. And I had said earlier in the show uh, that they went back to the fog. And I saw Scott looking at me kind of funny when I said that, like you thought I was remembering wrong. You know why I said that? That's what's in the script. Why was that? Yeah, I did. I did. You, you
1: noticed that, Mark. I'm very impressed. Yes, because I, 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 at the end of the episode, you don't see them back
3: in the fog. In my mind, I saw them going back uh, because I, I haven't just watched the episodes. I've read all the scripts, the outlines, the various drafts of the scripts, the memos. And I thought, wait a minute. That scene, when, when Steve and you were just reading it and saying they go from the OK Corral back to the ship and I thought no 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 they went back into the fog they go back into the fog that was cut out uh, they go back into the fog and it's um, right here from the OK Corral it goes back to scene 118 exterior limbo as before in scene 14 fog, strange shapes, eeriness and our people are there including a dazed and surprised checkoff. Kirk glances at him Pleased, Kirk says, "Welcome back, Mr. Chekhov." Chekhov says, "But, but, where have I been?" The figure of the Melkot begins to form against the mist, faint and hard and distinguished, but this time not expressionless. He looks puzzled, and the Melkot says, "Explain." And Kirk says, "Glad to." What would you like explained? And it pretty much goes into a lot of this dialogue. The Melkot says, "To you, the bullets were unreal." To the players we put against you, there's an answer to what you asked, Steve. These are players they put against them. There's your answer right there. To the players Mm -hmm. we put against you, the bullets are real and would kill, but you did not kill them. And Kirk says, we don't believe in killing. The Melcott says, they would have killed you. Kirk says, we didn't have to kill them. Therefore, we did not. The Melcott said, is this the way of your kind? Kirk goes into his speech. And then the Melcott says, we will consider it. It is being considered. And the Melcott vanishes. From there, they go back to the bridge. And then the Melcott appears at the end and says, you're welcome to come in. So when he said it is being considered, he was already in communication telepathically with the other Melkots. So there, there's the bookend right there which answers a lot of questions. So the Ah, Japanese tells us their intent. The only way we have to know this is by reading the scripts and so forth. So we know what the intent was. Mm -hmm. They were standing in the fog all that time and exactly in the same positions they were standing before. But in their minds, they were up against the players who were being put against them to test them and see if they would kill.
1: There you go, Steve. What do you think of that? It is so interesting. First
2: of all, I would have loved it if they went back to the fog rather than coming back to the bridge examining Chekhov. Yeah, I think that would have been much stronger. Also, what I think is so interesting, and this is just, you know, people who have worked on projects like this can tell you that one line being added or cut can change the whole meaning of the whole show. Yeah, You know, and this that framing is just slightly different. You know, like if we'd had the TV thing at the beginning, talking about them as players, ending up in the fog, all those things would have changed this show just a bit. And, and and I'll just give my final thoughts here, which is this is particularly an episode where I absolutely love what I love. I love the designs. I love the dialogue. I love like moments with Kirk and the sheriff. I think Chekhov is great in this episode. I love some of the Spock moments. And it's only if I think about it and go, wait, well, what's going on? And what are the milk trying to do? That it starts to, or why doesn't Spock, who said, you know, telepathy, that's a dangerous opponent, why is he not thinking about that through the vast majority of the episode? So, like, those are the things where it kind of falls apart. But it, that doesn't, for me, affect the experience of watching this very theatrical, very surreal sort of weird Western story, uh, which I really, really love.
3: You know, you know, something interesting, too, is I'm wondering why I had such a vivid picture in my head of them going back into the fog. Because I think that even predates me doing my research and having the opportunity to read the scripts. You guys, I bet if we looked back at James Blish's short story version, I bet they go back into the fog. Because, you know, he didn't watch the episodes. Mm-hmm. He he did his versions, his short stories, based on the final draft teleplay. So I bet if you look in that, that, uh, right. that story of one of those little paperbacks, We'll see they go back into the fog as well. So, okay, so it's not in the episode, but at least we know the intent of the writer. That version, The Last Gunfight,
1: was the name of the episode in in the James Blish novel. Like right. they didn't, It wasn't called Specter of the Gun. In the James Blish version, it was called The Last Gunfight. So this, to me, is what makes this reassessment of Specter of the Gun so much better. And I always loved the episode, but so many of the of the different perspectives on it, especially the one, Steve, that you raised early on in this, uh, this podcast recording has made me really see this episode in a whole new light. Uh, I've always liked it. I always felt like it stood out from the third season, would have been right at home in seasons one or season two. Uh, it's, a, it's a great Gene Kuhn script and the performances are great. The set design is great. The cinematography is great. The intensity, the direction, especially of that whole last act is so fantastic. Spectre the Gun is a damn fine episode. And the first of four back-to-back terrific episodes that were filmed for the third season. So after Spectre the Gun, you had Alana of Troyus, and then you had the Enterprise incident, and then you had the Paradise Syndrome. And if those four episodes were the first four episodes to actually be shown, then again, people would have had a completely different perspective of season three. But because of... Special effects work and other delays, whatever. Uh, the first episode to air was not the first episode that was filmed. And, you know, the rest is is history, really. Yeah, but how, Spectre the Gun is a fantastic episode.
3: How, how screwy is it for those of us who remember when we were first watching it on NBC, that the first time we saw a Klingon ship, it wasn't the Klingons, it was the Romulans using a Klingon ship because they showed Enterprise Incident before they showed Alana Troyes. I always felt that it, it's yeah, a shame, yeah. not just for the third season, but for the entire series. They, I would have loved it if they could have shown all the episodes in the order they were filmed. And that's how I watched them. You know, in the, going all the way back to, to the first episode, Corbinite Maneuver, Roddenberry rewrote that script ten times over to be the first episode we'd see. Oh, yeah. Because that's why he had Kirk go from uh, the doctor's office to his cabin down the corridor to the elevator up to the bridge to give us a tour of the ship. So we could also be impressed how big the ship was and then be so odd when the other ship came up that dwarfed the Enterprise. So they, they really meant them to be aired in a certain order, but NBC put them in the order they did. And I always tell people, don't watch them that way. Watch them the way they were filmed; you'll get a lot more out of the series.
1: Well, that is why we have been covering the production order on Enterprise incidents, so you can really see the evolution of the show, and it's been so rewarding, especially when you look at at just looking at the show, looking at the original series in a serialized way. But this is why Mark Cushman uh, has been just a fantastic guest here on Enterprise incidents, and so many, so much of the trivia that I pull comes from Mark's books, These Are the Voyages. So again, if you've been listening to Enterprise Incidents and you don't have that These Are the Voyages volumes on the making of the original show, then please, by all means, get them. And Mark, where can people get that These Are the Voyages books?
3: Well, you can get anything in the world at Amazon, but why? <laughs> you know, they got enough money. Uh, I would say go to jacobsbrownmediagroup.com and uh, that's the publisher. Jacob'sBrownMediaGroup.com, because if you can buy if you buy them there, they come signed automatically in blue ink. But you can also request to have them inscribed. So if you want to give a book away to a friend or somebody, it can be inscribed to that friend. And it takes a, a couple extra days than than Amazon would take to mail it to you, but you get that signature, you get the inscription. So that's Jacob'sBrownMediaGroup.com. My website is MarkCushman.com. I'm on Facebook at Mark Kushman,
1: and that's about it. Well, thank you again, Mark, for joining us. I mean, it definitely has been uh, an incredible, incredible experience having you guest on Enterprise Incidents.
2: Uh, Mark, what we'll do is I will put in the show notes right here in the podcast. You can go to them. There'll be a link to buy the book. And maybe we can also put it out on our social media, too, because these are really important books for anyone who's a real Star Trek fan. I think you have to put these in
1: your library. Absolutely. Completely agree. Meanwhile, Steve, I've been meaning to ask you this question, but I'm waiting for the right moment. That moment is now. So here we just covered basically Star Trek's Western. I'm wondering what episodes of the cinephiles did you cover that were Westerns?
2: (laughs) Well, it's funny you should ask because I happen to have a list right in front of me. We have covered some of the greatest Westerns ever made, including High Noon, The Magnificent Seven, The Searchers. Unforgiven and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. All of those episodes of Westerns have been explored in my other podcast, The Cinephiles.
1: And we are now getting into season three of Enterprise Incidents. There are so many ways you can support us on Enterprise Incidents. Of course, Definitely check out our Facebook page, like and follow us on Facebook so you can be the first to know what episode is next and also see other great things that we're going to post on our Enterprise Incidents Facebook page, like the link for you to get Mark Cushman's books, you know, totally uh, autographed to you and all that fun stuff. But also there there is a, a very, very special way that you can support us on Anchor. And Steve, tell us about that.
2: Well, right along with the links to buy Mark's book is also a link to support the show through Anchor. All you have to do is click on it and you can subscribe to the show for as little as 99 cents a month. We like to think of it as a tip jar jar, and we feel that we've uh, done some work to earn some tips. So we would love your support there. You can also follow the show at Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on uh, Instagram. And of course, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. And if you're on Apple Podcasts and haven't left a review Now's your chance to leave that five star review. You've been writing it in your head for a long time. It's time to actually write it down because we could really use that support
1: as well. And, Steve, where can people follow you on social media? Oh, me, SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris1 on Instagram. Scott, where could people find you? Oh, me. Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And, well, we are definitely off and running on season three of the original Star Trek series. On Season 3 of Enterprise Incidents. And boy, are we off to a great start here with Spectre of the Gun. And we're going to keep that ball rolling into the second episode that was filmed for Season 3, which is another really great episode. This one is a bottle show, one of many that we are going to see in Season 3 of Star Trek. But it is a terrific episode. Nevertheless, it is a land of Troyus. So make sure you're very careful when you wipe away those tears and join us on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. Until then, keep going boldly.